Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Pema Dirtle to the What About Death podcast. Pema is a director at Pristine Awareness, a foundation for Buddhist practice. He has also very recently retired as an associate professor of writing, editing and publishing at the University of Southern Queensland in Toowoomba. One of Pema's areas of interest has been memoir writing, but particularly in the context of understanding memory and how together memory and memoir can help us at the time of death and with our grief. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Pema. You're welcome. First up, what's the relationship between memory and, and memoir, but particularly in terms mm. of dying, death and grief? So the technical definitions of a memoir is that it's a portion of a life written by the person who has lived it. So whereas an autobiography is a whole life, which is interesting because you can't really write your whole life as an autobiography because you're still kind of living while you're writing. So really, even even autobiographies are really actually memoirs. So they're just a portion of a life. And we use the word memoir because it's to indicate the difference between a work that is based primarily on one's own recollections or from a work that's based primarily on documentary evidence. Not many people write autobiographies that are just purely based on documentary evidence because that would be dull. So most life writing is done from recollection and from reflection. Now, the other thing is because you're relying on your memory to write, it means that it is very much an unreliable narrator because everyone's memory is filtered through their own perception and biases and you know understandings so and then when we talk about um how it relates to death and dying like i think as people age they start to want to document their experience not all people but some people do start to want to do that because they start to feel that they don't want what they've learnt or what they've lived or what they've experienced to be lost. So mortality is in a way a, an inspiration for memoir often, but so is things like trauma and great things. Like I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I ran 84 marathons. I don't know if that's even possible. I'm not a runner myself. I'm, I'm a sitter and a reader. So, you know, sometimes we want to write a memoir because we feel that like we've achieved something exceptional, but often memoir writers are older and they're prompted to do so because they don't want their life to be lost. They want some kind of record that they existed. So it's an existential thing. Often memoir is about wanting to express that they that a person lived and that they meant something. So the writing of the work in, in a way is trying to kind of like say, 
I mean, I mean something, I meant something while I was alive. And then the other thing around death and dying is often people, when they get a terminal diagnosis or a life, just a life-threatening diagnosis, they start to reflect on their existence, on their life and on what's happened to them. And often that reflection, they want to save somehow so they, they can start to write. And then there's a third thing, which is that people who don't really understand their experience, they find it difficult or challenging or don't really know what has happened. And they use the writing of the memoir as a way to filter information and to try and find understanding. Because writing is one of these interesting things where writing is somewhat meditative and in the writing, we often come to understand things that we didn't understand before we wrote about them. You know, so it's a method of inquiry and it's a method of understanding. So that happens too. A really good example of that is Magda Zubansky's memoir. She kind of like was trying to understand her childhood and her Jewish roots and her, the path her father had taken in World War II. So there's other memoirs like that, people trying to understand their experience. So there's lots of reasons why people write memoir and mortality is definitely one of the main ones. What drew you to doing this research on memory and memoir? Well, I think Buddhism. If we apply the concept of shunyata, which is not a concept, it's a reality, to memoir and to memory, it changes how we think about them. Yeah, it essentially means things are not as solid and fixed as we think and things are, you know, they're impermanent and things are very much interconnected and interrelated and dependent on other things. So that's just basically it. But historically, up until some neuroscience started coming out about a decade ago, we thought of memory as quite fixed, quite certain and accurate. Your memories were always the same. But Shunyata says that can't be possible. No thing can be always the same. No thing is separate from other things. So it has to be connected to other things, which means you know, it's an aspect of the mind. So it must be connected to emotions. It must be connected to our experience, which means it's dynamic. Memory has to be dynamic. So, but then the neuroscience started to actually prove that about 10 years ago, it started to come out that every time we access a memory, for example, the memory changes. So each time we recall something in the recalling, the memory changes. And then there's also this stuff about if you have trauma, your memory making is different to if you don't have trauma. So if you have trauma, your memory making leans in a certain way, you know, and if you don't have trauma, then your memory making leans in another way. Also, when we're going through periods of grief and loss, people often note when they're going through grieving processes that they're unable to recall things. They're forgetful. And sometimes they don't even remember large chunks of time during the grief process because the memory making changes as a result of that emotional environment. So I really thought, okay, the neuroscience is starting to really prove the empty nature of memory. That really interested me and I was wondering how far that would go. Because the other thing is that if you have trauma or if you're a marginalised person or you've had lots of deep loss, it means that those memories don't have to be awful all the time. I'm not saying you need to rewrite your history or anything because that's not healthy, but you can change the emotional tone of your memory. So the, the old idea of memory was that it was fixed. A traumatic memory was always going to be traumatic. But now with this, if you apply the other to that, it's like that's not, that can't be true. The memory is empty. So it, it has to be changeable, at least the tone of it. And so neuroscience is now showing that as well, that very traumatic experiences, we can change the tone of them so that they're no longer traumatic. And in fact, they can become things that awaken us to the beautiful fragility of life, of our existence. They can awaken us to like the 
the things that are important, they can become quite powerful and transformative things. Even though before, the memory would pop in the mind and you'd have a panic attack and become insensate. Now we know that you can actually work with these memories and they can become actually transformative. So that really interested me because it's a Buddhist thing. It's about relieving suffering, changing the tone of the emotional tone of our memories so that we can not shy away from them, but also not be hurt by them. And also the fact that everything is empty, which means everything is workable. And so the old model of memory always used to irritate me a bit. (laughs) I was like, no, this is not true. We can work with this stuff. So how did you go about doing this research? Oh, well, I am not a cognitive scientist or anything like that. So my space is writing and publishing and Buddhism. So for me, that's why I started looking at memoir because I thought, okay, so in my space, where are we working with memory? And that's in memoir, life writing. So then I started to look at it like how in life writing, memory figures so prominently because it's really the source of it. You're recollecting. And then what does that mean given that in the recollection it'll change it? So literally once the book's written, or even a short memoir piece, like an essay or something, in the accessing of the memory and in the writing of it, then it will change. Now when you remember that stuff, it'll include also the memory of the writing. So it's changed now. So where before it might have just been about a specific kind of event you're recording, now the quality of your current experience and knowledge is added in to that memory. And so the kind of like outer shape of it remains the same. But when you look at it, it's completely different. For example, childhood memories. I thought my house that I grew up in was huge. Then I went back there as an adult. I was like, oh, this is a little cottage. But now when I think back of my house, I have a an adult's concept of the space. So your understandings reinterpret the dream. So then when it come, when you recall it, you don't recall it as a child anymore. You're recalling it as an adult. And that necessarily changes how you recall it and also what it means. Lots of stuff could happen when we're children. We don't understand them. But as adults, we do understand them. And we, and we then make meaning from that understanding. So that's why memoir is kind of interesting to me because it's it's the space where we really communicate our memories to others outside of conversation. But um, it is really the space where we tell each other what we remember, what we recall, and what that means to us. I think it's really important stuff about how to understand each other and how to become better at understanding that we're all very different and we all find meaning in very different ways from kind of almost the same thing sometimes. So it sounds like memoir can be useful both before somebody dies. So for the person, say, who's writing the memoir, how does it help those who are left behind? Having access to the memoir of a loved one, say, help the grieving process, do you think? Yeah. So there's a whole movement. It's more it's more popular in Europe than here called bibliotherapy. It's basically about, um, you know, for example, there's a lot of a lot of research been done around eating disorders. So around where someone with an eating disorder, if they read about the experience of someone else with an eating disorder who recovered, how that's very beneficial for the person with the eating disorder. It becomes part of their therapy. And I think the same is true of grief. You know, if we read about others' grief, or even if we read the life of our beloveds who are gone, then that helps us to be with the grief and process that. The thing about reading is when we're reading um, and when we're writing, it's they're the only times that when almost all of the brain is lit up, 
all parts of the brain are working, writing in particular, but also reading. Because when we're reading and writing, we're also remembering. So what we're reading prompts memory, what we're reading prompts other parts of the brain, like our skill and knowledge spaces. So oh, we know how to do that. Oh, we know what that looks like. And also prompts our kind of reflection and our emotions and feelings. So all parts of the brain kind of light up. And research shows that that in itself means that the creation of the connections between these different parts of the brain, and I would argue as a Buddhist, different aspects of the mind and consciousness, the creation of those connections helps healing. Healing is about connecting things and illness and grief and loss. They're about when connections are weakened or broken. So it's really interesting to me that when we read one of my students at USQ, she edited her deceased grandfather's memoir. And it was a really profoundly moving and therapeutic process for her. It shows you actually that beings exist beyond just our memory and they're in other people's memories. And when there's a memoir there, it's like, well, this is now going to go out and, and more and more people will connect with this and more and more people will hold that person in their heart. I think it's really valuable therapeutically. I'm not a therapist though. That's just my opinion as someone who writes and reads. When you're writing a memoir, there is a level of energy that goes into that, doesn't it? So that energy is perhaps being drawn upon by those who read the memoir as well, I guess, depending on your perspective around such matters. <laughs> mm, there's a really interesting thing. There's a whole heap of li literary theory that says that meaning is almost wholly and completely produced by the reader. But anyone who writes knows that that's not quite true because the things that are in our mind, even if we don't put them on the page, they're somehow communicated. Very interesting thing that you might not put down the exact words for what for the picture you have in your head when you're writing, but somehow the readers get that picture. Mm. It's really interesting. So how has the, the presentation of memory and memoir changed over time? I'm particularly thinking about memoir as a memorial. Seems to be quite significant, particularly in the, the West, so how does memory and, and memoir work in terms of memorialization and, and the change as time has passed? It is actually our memories that are the most emotionally kind of impactful, our memories of that person or those people. Then I think what a memoir does is it replicates that. So it creates or produces or enables these emotional experiences and these memories. Because when we're reading, we visualise we're televisual beings, which means not all of us, some of us are not, but most of us are televisual beings, which means we think in pictures. And so when we read, we, there are pictures that, that rise and those pictures and the words, they create a very kind of like detailed memory of something that we weren't there for. So we see a person doing the thing we're reading about, we see them doing it and we feel what they felt and we feel it our own response to what they're feeling and then that's that becomes a memory of our own a memory of reading but it's actually quite 3d you know there's a visual there's often sounds and smells that we connect when we're reading it and it becomes a very kind of real and so in many ways even though like lived experience of a person is the strongest memorial for us to read about a person's life creates an almost a copy of that for us it's almost like a real experience it is kind of real but at the same time it's based on secondhand information so that can, can trigger all those kinds of emotions and feelings and and we can really feel very connected to a person we never knew 
actually. And someone who we've lost if we're reading their words, it can really bring them back to us. And also, if we're writing something that's been written as a memorial for someone, like one of my teachers wrote a memorial for his sister who passed away last year, it tells us things that perhaps that person was too modest to share and gives us insight into how they were with that one person, which may have been different to how they were with others. They kind of add dimension to the person because we only ever know that side of the person that we know. So I think it's, it's very rich and complicated, actually, I think. I'm wondering how broader society and broader cultural experience influences the writing of memoir versus how we read memoir. Are there cultural and social or societal influences to how we go about it? Yes. On the very functional level, that's a really super interesting question. And I think it's something that is missed often. The, the environment or culture in which we write and the time in which we write very much influences how we write, but also what we write, the things that we choose to focus on. And then on top of that, certain moments and cultural trends, but also larger cultural feelings influence the meaning we make from something. For example, if you read a memoir from like the 1930s or 40s, we could find it very an Australian one in particular, we could find it very, very challenging because it would often use words and ideas that we've left behind. And it would assume things about things like gender, sexuality, race, the way, even the way the mind works that are not we now know not to be true. So on just on a very fundamental level, you know, like in the past, a person's memories were considered to be either accurate or inaccurate based on the person's character. So if a person's character was considered flawed, their memories would be flawed. But if a person was, you know, esteemed, then what they said must be true. And that's why we see all these colonial era memoirs that were taken to be completely factual and accurate and but completely left out that this colonisation process was going on. There's all this violence. There's all this very negative stuff going on, but we're just valorising that they cut a few trees down and built a house. Neither say they land, stole the land first. So there's all this cultural stuff that definitely influences how we write and what we write and then how we understand it and make meaning. Well, another example is a lot, there's a lot of memoirs right now about our struggles with alcohol, drugs, food, body dysmorphia, gender, etc. Those sorts of things would never have been written 20, 30 years ago. There were, there were a few of those kinds of memoirs 20, 30 years ago but they were really stand out, you know, they stood out. Now there are thousands of those released every year and those sorts of things that we once considered private, shameful, you don't talk about, an indication of one's failings now are not seen that way at all because now we know addiction is a disease. Food issues are a disease, largely genetic. People have body dysmorphia, it's an actual disease. These things are considered now to be health issues rather than questions of character. So we would completely interpret them differently when we encountered them. Someone writing about um, anorexia nervosa now would elicit sympathy and concern and respect for the bravery that it took. But in the 1950s, that would have been considered a gross topic that you just you shouldn't talk about. This is shameful, you should not talk about it, and that person's crazy. But now we know that it's not at all about a person's character. It's, it's a disease, the same as 
leukemia, same as all of these things that are diseases that are usually genetics driven. So we really interpret and understand them definitely from where we're sitting and what's going on. It's a really interesting question. And I think it's a much misunderstood notion how much our current historical place and time influences what we read and how we, like even choosing, just the choosing of the things we read is very much driven by our environment. Our personal interests are very deeply interconnected with current times. And the idea of like retaining your voice is so important to so many people, you know, because they don't want to be misinterpreted, they don't want to be misunderstood. Particularly people who've done terrible things, they often want to write a memoir because they want to kind of try and explain, sometimes justify an excuse, but sometimes just explain, you know, why they did what they did, where they got to where they got. Do you think for some people who write memoir are conscious of the impermanence of life, the unpredictability and uncertainty of death? I think we're all aware of that. We're all aware of the precarious nature of life. Do you really think that? I, I do, but I think a lot of us are in denial. So denial is like a very real thing, a very real thing, as you know. But our existential anxiety is the source of almost all of our distress. But we blame other things for it because it's a deflection process. If we're really, really, really angry, but we think anger is an ugly emotion, we cry instead, we feel sad instead. Because it's easier to feel sad than this ugly emotion. Other people might think crying and feeling sad is not acceptable, and so they are angry instead. They choose without knowing the kind of emotion that they're more comfortable living in. And fear is the root of all that. And the fundamental fear we have, I think, is two fears which are the same. One is the fear of death, and the other is the fear that we actually already don't really exist. (laughs) Somehow we're not really here, which is like quite a profound anxiety for a lot of people. And if you look at anxiety disorders in particular, the things that provoke, I, I once had a very severe anxiety disorder, which I have thankfully recovered from, the panic attacks and anxiety attacks are almost always related around health-related stuff and death. Almost always. There's public speaking and stuff is a very common one too. But the stuff that really most of us are anxious about, when we start feeling anxious, we start thinking there's something physically wrong with us that's fatal. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to pass out and die. I'm going to have a stroke. Like those are the kinds of catastrophic thoughts that people have. And the stuff that we're really kind of denying and trying to avoid is our fear of death and how, you know, on a day-to-day basis we feel it, but we mask and hide it. We're in denial. And then there's this fascination with death, which is when we're masking and hiding our fear and it starts to resurface as fascination. It's like it can't be suppressed. We're all aware that we're going to die, but we all think it's going to be in a 100 years from now. So, And we just live in denial about the fact that they could actually be in the very next moment. We live in complete denial of that. And I think sometimes when people write memoir, if they have a, like a, you know, a diagnosis that scares them or something happens that they want to celebrate or something happens that was so traumatic they need to share it, I think often, not always, but often it's like if it's like a celebratory thing, it's like, see, I do matter. I am existing. I did. My life is worth something. And if it was really sort of traumatic, it's like my life is worth something. This shouldn't have happened to me. And or if they've had some kind of diagnosis, they want to, leave an accurate record of themselves behind. 
do you think memoir can help people prepare for death or do you think it keeps them more attached to longevity? I think it depends on the person. I think for most of us, we're in denial. We want some aspect of us to survive. So in that sense, it sort of might actually put off facing the truth. But for others, it might be a way of working through things left undone and resentments or attachment remaining. And I think writing with guidance, like if you have someone guiding you or helping you or supporting you, or you have an objective or you have the Dharma there or some other philosophy or faith that helps you to process as you write, I think it can be a way of letting go and getting to the point where you have no regrets, no further attachments with things or people or situations, and you literally are okay to go. You know, there were some things undone, but I've worked through them. I have no more attachment to what I'm leaving behind. I'm okay to let it go, including one's own body and one's own life. The moment of death is perhaps the most important moment in a Buddhist's or any being's life because that moment indicates very much that mind at that time, whatever the quality of that mind at that time, that is what will be the seed for a future life. And the Tibetan teachings go further than that. They suggest that if you have love and devotion and you know compassion in your heart, that's the primary quality of your heart at the time of dying, you can become completely free in that moment, no rebirth, you know, just completely free. So I think the moment of dying is so important. And I think we all kind of know it, but we're all in huge denial. Can memoir be done via video? Yeah, I think it is done via video all the time. And I think it's, um, I think it's the more democratic way that it's done now. A video is very different. That, it's just reduced purely to the person's presence and their own feeling. That just requires them to be present and them to do it. And I think a lot of people leave these kinds of memoirs, for, particularly like I've seen a number by mothers who are passing away and have young children and they want to leave a record of themselves for their children so their children will feel they have a mother, they had a mother. And I think that's all very beautiful and very powerful and by all accounts, you know, from the children who've had these, it really was helpful, very beneficial. I think as technology changes, we'll continue to pick it up and use it in that way. And I think it's actually very good. What you've been saying is that there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to memoir and to memory. So how has your research influenced your own view of death and dying and your own mortality? For me, memory is fabricated. So a lot of people think memory is true and real. Well, it's real, but it's not necessarily true. Memories are fabricated based on our sense perception, which is filtered through our worldview and our understanding of ourselves and the moment in time that things happen. So they're very fabricated memories, and so they're very unreliable. I mean, they're reliable in a way in that they they indicate how our mind was at the time, how we thought things were happening, how we felt about how we thought things were happening. But they're quite removed from reality. They may be quite removed from what actually happened. So for me, that's really interesting to me in terms of like when we go through dying process, heart rate has stopped, brain activity has stopped, respiration or breathing has stopped. 
the mind, you know, science says there's nothing at that point, but, <laughs> but Buddhism says quite the opposite. At that point, the mind fabricates and it'll be very much like your memories, very much like your dreams, because it's of the same. There's a word in Tibetan that means the mind that is like a magician creating illusions. And that mind that is like a magician creating illusions is the mind that is quite involved in making memories, quite involved in making emotions, and quite involved in perceiving reality. It's the same part of the mind that does that. And so it's very much fabricated. And I think if you can kind of like view memory as not false, but coloured very much by your perception at the time, your understanding at the time, and then every time you access that memory, it changes each time. If you start to see it as dynamic and fluid rather than solid and fixed and dependent very much on the emotions that are in the mind at the time of the making of the memory and and in the mind at the time of recalling the memory, because we see this, oh, this is all a projection. When I go to sleep and when I wake up every day, I say to myself, this is a dreamlike illusion, a fleeting fabrication, a mere mirage. To remind myself of the illusory and fabricated nature of our perception, particularly if I'm experiencing pain or distress or something like that, then I will do those aphorisms. And I find you know, even with physical pain, it really helps. To The emotional component of your reaction to pain, it just goes away. you know. And then you've just got the raw energy, and the raw energy is not actually very distressing. So it's really interesting to me that like, if we understand how memory is, it can be actually an example for how our mind works in lots of other settings, how we perceive others, for example. Our memories are quite dynamic and fluid and fabricated. So, is our, so very much is our perception of other people, which means we really need to listen and, and actually try to get our, you know, our preconceptions and our biases and things just out of the way and actually try to connect with that human being on an emotional level. Ditto when we die. Is it possible or is, it, is there any point when you write a memoir to be aware of our biases and our perceptions and our conditioning and those sorts of things? Is there any point to pondering that as we're writing a memoir? I think when you write, you get into a flow state and there's no... You know, those kind of like critical processes often recede, but it is worthwhile pondering these things in the planning and in the editing and in the rewriting. You want to try to get to, particularly like if you, for example, if, you, if you're describing others in your work, we have an obligation in your memoir, you know, we have an obligation to try and represent them fairly. We don't want to be nasty or even just careless and just misrepresent people. They have shadow and light. It's, it's better to try and see them clearly. I mean, I feel that. But I think sometimes it's therapeutically too hard to try and see three-dimensional human being. I think sometimes that's too hard. I think it's with a lot of things. And I think it's even sometimes with the idea of, of death and dying. I think this is why we have such a strong death denial society mm. is because it's too hard to think about it it's we're not conditioned to see it as a natural part of life we're conditioned to see it as something to avoid something that's uncomfortable and something to be afraid of and that's why I think memoir is really such an interesting notion writing something about past or present whether or not that will help us when the reality of the inevitability of death comes to us. 
I think it really depends on the writer and on the reader too, you know. So the, what, something you just said just reminded me of something they often say about biographies. I love biographies. I read them all the time. And sometimes people ask me, oh, how's that biography? And I go, oh, you know, with biographies, everyone dies at the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There's no other way for this to end, you know. Yep. But death is not something to laugh at or treat lightly because it is serious. You know, but at the same time, it's not something to be frightened of or to um, turn into a monster. Monsters are usually sort of some permutation of our fear of death. But the other thing about um, our fear is that, and our denial, is that we seem to be very bad at completely burying it. And it's also like it rises in literature and movies in the form of monsters mm. and violence, killers and true crime and stuff. It's like this is, this is our, you know, fear of death that's, that's kind of like got a layer of fascination over it to try and make it be more palatable. As our faith traditions are becoming eroded, we, we then see death differently. And that way of viewing death, in my humble opinion, is actually scary. But the Buddhist view of death is actually not. And so for us, if we are Buddhists, we know that there is a continuum of mind that persists. It's not necessarily the person persists, but there's there's some kind of continuum of mind. There's something like rather beautiful and wonderful about that. But there is something that's beyond death. And that's in Buddhism, you know, what we connect with when we sit in meditation, you know. Well, I look forward to talking more about that in the future when we have a discussion about your book. But unfortunately, we've got to draw this to a close now. So Thank you so much, Pema, for taking the time today to talk to me about memory and memoir. It's a really interesting topic in and of itself, but I think certainly within the context of of death and dying and, and grief. I appreciate your time and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Susan, and I really appreciated your questions. They're really insightful and I think we had, we had a fun discussion. We did indeed. Thank you and, yes, we'll talk to you again soon. In our next episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr Libby Selno, a palliative care consultant and researcher from London in the United Kingdom. Dr Selno has been a leader in developing social and public health approaches to death, dying and loss for over two decades. And she was recently the first author of the fascinating Lancet Commission on the Value of Death bringing death back into life. This commission explores how we understand death in the 21st century and considers the implications of the various systems that determine how we die. It offers insights into how we can develop a realistic utopia in relation to dying, death and grief that is hopeful, intentional and actually values dying and death. Please join me next time as Dr. Salno tells us about this extraordinary research. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.